You're listening to one of the fully public episodes of Two for Tea. I'm your host, Iona Italia, and I'm assisted behind the scenes by my sound engineer, Justin Ward. This is a podcast about politics, society, science, and art, and about how everyone is wrong apart from us. I hope to provide a forum for calm, reasonable voices from across the political spectrum and counter the current atmosphere of frenzied partisanship and hysteria. The podcast is entirely listener-supported. To gain access to full-length versions of all our episodes, support us on Patreon at 2 for T. Welcome to The Conversation. Hello, everyone. My guest this week is Greg Luke Yanoff. Greg is a First Amendment lawyer, and he has been the president of FIRE, the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, since 2006. FIRE is an organization which defends the free speech rights of lecturers, students, and staff on campus. I should explain before we begin that I am I'm British, I'm accustomed to saying lecturers, and I know that Americans um, usually say professors. Just take it as read that when I say lecturers, I mean people who teach at university, um, what you might think of as professors rather than um, people who give talks for a living or something. Mm. Um, So um, staff and students at university, we don't actually defend staff. Uh, st- staff has very different rights due to employment law, although they, they, they definitely get uh, treated pretty badly uh, often, too. Oh, OK. Sorry. We're getting into that. Um, uh, yes. Also, we um, by staff. Sorry. I mean, teaching. I mean, yeah. people who teach at university. The, the easiest way for um, Americans to understand it is we defend professors and students. <laughs> OK. Yeah. <laughs> OK. <laughs> Um, Anyway, if I say staff, I'm going to mean teaching staff. And if I say lecturers, I mean people who teach at universities. Um, So we're not talking so much about the non-teaching side of university life. And we call those Um, administrators, and they actually cause a lot of our problems. (laughs) Yeah. In the the UK, we don't usually have administrators. Uh, So teaching staff have to do administrative duties as well, Mm -hmm. which is an absolute pain in the backside. (laughs) Um, But administrators do seem to be a plague. So I guess it's a mixed blessing. Yes, I think we'd actually Um, be better off in the country in a lot of ways if if campuses had a lot fewer administrators. uh, Greg is the co-author of The Coddling of the American Mind with Jonathan Haidt. Um, and he is the author of Unlearning Liberty. He's also the producer of several films, most recently um, The Mighty Ira, a film about Ira Glasser, um, which uh, he made in conjunction with Fire. And Greg and John Haidt were previously interviewed on this podcast. Um, That was one of the earliest episodes of the podcast, which I did together with Helen Pluckrose, and I'll put a link to that in the show notes. So, Greg, welcome back. Yeah, thanks for having me again. Happy 2020. Oh, yeah. I'm not sure happy is the right word for 2020, <laughs> but... <laughs> it's acceptable. Um, so, um, the first thing that I wanted to ask you was, you wrote Unlearning Liberty in 2012. And I 
I was actually somewhat reluctant to read the book because I thought um, a book that is about uh, socio-political and legal issues that was published in 2012 is um, no longer may no longer be relevant, and um, that was absolutely not the case at all. I think that pretty much almost almost every instance of every absolutely infuriating instance of a free speech violation that you um, catalog in that book could have happened yesterday. And I would urge everybody to read it. It's very beautifully written. And you also um, give a lot of very good arguments in favor of free speech and very carefully debunk a lot of objections to free speech. And I'd like to get into both of those aspects of the book later. But first of all, how have things changed since 2012, well, if they've changed? In 2012, I'd already been at my career since uh, 2001. I was originally hired as the first legal director of, of FIRE before I became president in 2006. And in 2012, I was actually feeling a little hopeful um, because... After you know doing this for a long time, I'd seen some really bad years, and I'd say particularly the University of Delaware case that I talk about in the book, which was a crazy sort of um, reprogramming program, um, which I spent almost a chapter talking about, but also cases like Hayden Barnes. This was a student who was kicked out of school um, for a collage he put on Facebook. It takes a while to explain. Um, but it was just horror, horror story after horror story. But they tended, to, but the worst ones I'd seen uh, tended to cluster together around 2008, 2009. And by 2012, it seemed like things were getting a little bit better. Um, but as I've you know, said in countless interviews since then, um, in 2013, right at the end of 2013, in the 2013-2014 school year, there was this very sudden, very clear change on campus, whereas suddenly students who had, who had as a group been very good on free speech for my entire career going back to 2001, um, they were and, and mostly rolled their eyes at a lot of the attempts to sort of protect them from offensive speech um, or to you know, get rid of um, uh, offens you know, offensive music or comedians. The students were our, were our best constituency. And then in 2013-2014, we started seeing demands for new speech codes, for microaggression policies, for trigger warning policies, for speakers to be disinvited um, at, at, a, at a large scale. And it was very, very sudden. So what's interesting is all of the cases that I talk about in Unlearning Liberty could still happen today easily. But if I were to rewrite Unlearning Liberty today, there would be a lot more focus, unfortunately, on student-driven censorship. Uh, currently, the biggest section on that in the book deals with um, uh, student governments on campus, which really can behave like third-world dictators in a lot of cases. But it's been a very striking change uh, since 2012. And it always seems just as I think things are getting better, that's, that's right when they're about to get much, much worse. So um, tell me about some of the ways in which campuses traditionally, or some of the ways in which you have experienced campuses trying to get round to the First Amendment. Oh, um, one thing that I always try to point out is, and I call this censorship gravity, um, it, it's my term for the fact that situation normal for humanity um, it puts a high premium on conformity uh, and is pretty hostile to challenging uh, provocative views. 
Um, and so we're kind of wired to not want to have free speech to a degree. It, it, you, you, as I said, another piece, you have to learn not to burn witches. <laughs> Our instincts are, 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 you know, um, fight the outsider, you, you know, get uh, uh, fight for cohesion, have conformity. That, that's very strong in human instincts. So in a sense, freedom of speech is always in tension with that. It, it's not the, it's not the normal circumstance of humanity. Um, and that's one of the reasons why it's a very, uh, fragile right. But as um, Jonathan uh, Rausch uh, po points out in, in his really important book, Kindly Inquisitors, um, th th there's this whole kind of way of looking at the world that he calls liberal science, of which free speech is, is, is a very important part. That essentially the idea that you don't just tolerate uh, outsiders, but you actually let them argue uh, w w with your, you know, uh, with, with the most esteemed members of your society and even sometimes listen to them <laughs> because they might be right. That goes against a lot of our, our, our natural impulses. So in a sense, you know, higher education is trying or at least was trying to be this island of uh, 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 that was free from the assumptions and conformity of the rest of society, and that that meant it should, was supposed to be a safe space, you know, to, to borrow a, a, a much hackneyed term, for experimentation, for uh, uh, for trying out ideas, for arguing, but also for looking uh, look, looking uh, at the world um, in, in a way that that uh, in which you accept the possibility that even your most beloved uh, beliefs might be completely wrong. Um, and that's a hard thing to maintain. And I think what we've seen in the last five years in particular are, is, is a sort of conformist culture um, on campus that whether higher education understands this or not um, can badly undermine people's confidence uh, in what higher education produces. So it's really, when you talk about censorship gravity, um you mean that there what we need is more than just free speech laws but a free speech culture is that is that correct uh, absolutely and this is a point that um i i always find almost bizarre to have to debate the importance of free speech culture really the, the importance of free speech culture over the importance of free speech law because there are plenty of countries across the world that have free speech on the books of uh, of uh, their constitutions i mean the old soviet union used to have free speech in, in its constitution um, but uh, without free speech culture, free speech law just doesn't help you enough. Um, and of course, it's also the idea that these things are entirely separate always strikes me as kind of silly. I mean, laws don't just come out of, you know, um, out of the platonic form of law just kind of lands on Earth. They usually reflect things that the existing uh, culture already values. So by the time the U.S., the First Amendment was passed in 1791. And it was at a time where Rausch's liberal science was really starting to take hold. And, and that was, you know, in the Enlightenment, um, where these where we started to see that there are absolutely huge advantages to freedom of speech and scientific method and questioning and doubt systemically trying to figure out if, if we're correct. The advantages were absolutely overwhelming. But in a society, but since there is, it means that people are going to be uncomfortable. It means that people are going to find out things about the world they don't want to know. It means that um, you can't, you know, arrest or kill someone who says, uh, you know, has nasty opinions. Um, that's that's one of the rules. It, it's uncomfortable, particularly for those in power, to have to live with free speech. Now, one of the great uh, one of the great ironies of the current situation is that one of the most powerful institutions in the world is American higher education, flat out. 
Um, it, it, it probably has a trillion dollars in assets. Like it, it, was, it was half a billion maybe uh, 10 years ago. Um, sorry, half a trillion. They had $500 billion in assets, um, you, know, it, you know, ages ago. So by now, it's power, money, and influence is off the charts. But it teaches its students that they have uh, that, that they have very little power, and that, um, and it doesn't really see that the reason why it, why higher education is increasingly indoctrinating uh, people with an, with at least a skepticism about freedom of speech is partially because um, on campus, free, uh, the First Amendment is what uh, prevents campuses from having or enforcing uh, hate speech codes, uh, for uh, for example. Um, but there, but this in, but this power sort of inversion leads a generation of students to think that if we just had free hate speech codes on the books, um, that would uh, society would 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 vastly improve. Without remembering um, that the reason why you have free speech in the first place as a as a legal right is the, uh, is to protect minority opinions. And th- this is basic stuff that I have to go through in, 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 uh, in U.S. civics. It's not even explained very well on, on, on campus anymore. That essentially, um, in, in a democracy uh, in a, like the U.S., if you have 51% of the vote, um, you're, you're, you, those opinions are going to be safe. Uh, the, the, the people themselves are not going to crack down on opinions that the, the majority uh, actually hold. The only opinions they're going to go after are ones that are that are decidedly in, in the minority. But because higher education can't kind of wrap its head around the fact that it is, for lack of a better word, the man, it is actually incredibly wealthy, incredibly powerful, incredibly uh, privileged, also to borrow a term, that its dislike of freedom of speech comes from that privileged power position. Mm. Yeah, I think it's... Um... I think it it was it's very clear to me reading the book and also in the kinds of things that you say that you also understand um that there is a constant temptation towards censorship and nobody Absolutely. likes to hear um uh, no one likes to be harshly critiqued um yeah. no one likes to be mocked or at least mocked in a very in a sort of in an aggressive way, no one likes to feel bad, um, yeah. and many people don't like to have their opinions questioned, uh, including mm-hmm. myself. I really don't like it. I hate. Oh, debating. sure, yeah. Um, I, and seeing that stuff in yourself is is really crucial. I, I, I'm, I, and and that's one thing that I really try to be clear. It's also all over coddling um, to point out. It's like, listen, I don't. I, I I struggle with some of this stuff myself. Your your natural instincts are. That person needs to shut their mouth now, in some cases. Because one thing that I'm um, hearing a lot on social media is the opinion that this is a leftist thing, um, that Mm -hmm. it is leftists who favor censorship and right-wingers are intrinsically in favor of um, freedom of speech. And Uh I I just, uh, I don't think that that is accurate at all. I think it's just that... Nope. Your free speech rights are always in danger from the people who have power over you. And if you're a student yeah. at a university or if you're a, a lecturer, a professor at a university, then it's the university that has power over you. And most US universities are leftist institutions. But that doesn't mean that this is something intrinsic to being a left winger. Oh, of course. Yeah, absolutely. No, no. Um, well, I will say that it has been unfortunate in my, in my own lifetime. I mean, I, I've been a lifelong Democrat. You know, I, come, I came up very working class. 
and um and definitely in the 80s there was uh, being a liberal and being pro free speech were one and the same thing i mean it it couldn't have been overstated how central that was um to liberal identity at the time except for this relatively small group of thinkers on american campuses that i always thought of as kind of our our, our wackies our wackos you know like essentially some of the and, and it's funny to think of it that way that some some uh, professors you know uh, were, were the ones that were really kind of out of step with the rest of the uh, rest of the movement i have been disappointed that it seems like in the u.s the sort of free speech skeptic or even free speech hostile um a group seems to be winning, uh, which I find unfortunate. But there's nothing, but you're right, there's nothing uh, up that says right-wingers are for free speech. That's ridiculous. Um, Left-wingers are necessarily against it. Um, you know, give, given there are still a lot of old-school liberals among the left, uh, like me. But that, but that, that's, a, that's a conversation that I anticipated and always try to kind of step out of with, with the name. And I, so often that I named my blog the eternally radical idea. And part of the point there is it's neither a conservative idea or, or, a, liber, or, or a liberal idea. Um, it's neither just conservatives or liberals who oppose it. To a degree, every age, people in every society oppose freedom of speech. And, and a lot of times people will talk from the other, other way, saying, well, since, since the dawn of time, man has fought to be free. It's like, yeah, that's only because the rest of humankind was trying to oppress or, or, or shut that person up. So, eternal, so free speech is the eternally radical idea. It's always going to feel and be a radical idea, and it's always going to make un- people uncomfortable. And if it's not, it may not be doing its job. You might not be doing it right. <laughs> so what do you think the, gre- the, the greatest benefits of free speech are? Knowing the world as it is, um, and th- and this I wrote. I'm going to be writing more about it, but this is my sort of idiosyncratic uh, view of free speech. But it's very expansive. Uh, but particularly if you you know take the humanist project very seriously, and I do. If you take the project of human knowledge, you know to, to, that I call it in this kind of grandiose way, it's very simple, but a very arduous process that you'll never quite get to that we always underestimate the difficulty of. We have this problem of common sense that essentially we think we know what the world looks like. We we have intuitions about what what it looks like. We have intuitions on everything from physics to numbers, um, and when we started doing experimentation towards whether or not our instincts were right, that was one, that was the scientific revolution. And time and time again, we were like, wow, okay, that was, we were way off on that. That's not, that's not, that, that's, that's not the way um, the world works at all. And now as we kind of move forward in history, we're still trying to understand the world as it is. And an important part of the world as it is, is what people really think and why, period. And and this is and, and this is one of the reasons why I push against the marketplace of ideas argument to a degree. It's not that I think the marketplace of ideas argument is a bad idea or metaphor. I just think it's insufficient. So the best place for for the metaphor for marketplace of ideas is uh, our politics um, and higher education, where essentially. Uh, in, or, and, and, and that I mean scholarship, where essentially there are arguments that are supposed to get you somewhere and that hopefully, you know, some of the better ideas will win out over some of the worst ideas, which everyone knows is not always true. But that's just the battle part of it. That's just the science part of it. Um, knowing what people really think and why is about knowing the human condition. It's about knowing who to be afraid of. It's about knowing what the what, uh, you know, what conspiracy theories are being spread. 
um, you know, why people won't tell <laughs> won't tell pollsters why they why they want to vote for Trump. All of this stuff is really essential. And as soon as you uh, as soon as you start detaching yourself a little bit and looking at the world as if you were a sort of an alien viewing the world, it starts to seem really ridiculous to uh, threaten people into not saying what they really think, particularly in, a, in not just from uh, particularly in a democracy, of course, where what people think really matters uh, m- even more than uh, normal. But even just from a scientific standpoint, um, if we want to know what we're like, we have to know what we think. Yeah, I I like that. Um, I like that idea much better than the marketplace of ideas. I think for several reasons. One is that um, the marketplace of ideas. So the idea that the ideas are stress tested by being mm-hmm. expressed, and then eventually the better ideas win out over the less good ideas um, over longer historical time. And the problem with that is that locally and um, in over shorter time periods, very bad ideas can win out over good ones. Um, Absolutely. And we see that with dictators and demagogues and things can definitely go backwards. I do have a Pinkerian belief that in the grand scheme of things, um, the progress is forward, but that's a belief. It's not, I have no way of really proving that. Um, mm-hmm that it has that it's always going to continue to to be that way um it's quite possible we might go terribly backwards forever yeah at some point there might be some turning point um you know but uh, it, i i did, I did oh, sorry yeah. i did, I did just, just just want to add one thing um you know the people who came up with the marketplace of ideas metaphor um you know there it wasn't a completely independent discussion uh, invention of course but people like louis brandeis for example and oliver wendell holmes you know they definitely knew that the the um uh, the, the bad ideas don't always lose um but uh, and and that's uh, that can be kind of taken for granted um that sometimes the bad ideas actually win. But at the same time, you don't have a fighting chance if the truth doesn't even get to be said. Um, so essentially, it, it, yeah. it's it's necessary, but not sufficient. <laughs> but I think your view also emphasizes the, the social value of freedom of speech. Um, and um, it's it's been a sticking point, I, I find, often for people who are defending free speech with a marketplace of ideas metaphor, when you come upon somebody who's uh, who is just saying kind of nasty things, and people are saying this sure. doesn't really even one of Alex Jones's rants does that even really rise to the level of being ideas that are being expressed mm-hmm. there, um, and therefore, what use does it have in the marketplace? And I much prefer your view. This is about having a clear sense of what people actually think and believe. Um, mm-hmm. And since we have no way of forcing people to change how they think and believe, we can only attempt to persuade them, and we can only persuade them if we first know what they think. Right, and this is and and, and uh, it was interesting that you brought the, in talking about unlearning liberty, and I and I mentioned the University of Delaware, a very aggressive ideological program, and one and there's so so many so much that's wrong with that program. It can be hard to miss. Uh, or sorry, it can be easy to miss uh, the fact that um, 
that this was a, a really aggressive program to try to root out uh, racism, uh, sexism, all, all the isms among incoming students to uh, a large public school in the U.S. University of Delaware. And this was way back in, in, in 2007 that we found out about this policy. Um, but one thing that was really striking about it is they pulled the students coming in about their attitudes about you know, uh, tolerance and uh, uh, dating across uh, racial lines about um, homosexuality. And they scored actually very tolerant coming in. So like the idea that 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 um uh, they still thought that they needed this really aggressive um, program, uh, day in, day out uh, programming to make them not racist and uh, racist. It was completely the fact that they were coming in decidedly not racist to begin with just didn't seem to matter somehow. Um, and so I, I do think that the uh, that knowing the world as it is, is really important. And campuses in some cases, even if they get um, when the ideology gets very hot, uh, no matter how much evidence you have to refute it, some people just aren't going to even pay attention to that. They still think with an almost religious mindset that they need this particular heavy handed intervention, um, which actually might make them more hostile uh, to uh, r- rather than uh, more appreciative of, of uh, values like diversity. Mm. Mm. Yeah. You also talk about how um, censorship leads to increasing polarization. Can you say yes. more about that? Yeah. As far as one of the, one of the most interesting things, a phenomena that, that I've learned from my sort of um, my, my hobby in a social and behavioral psychology um, is group polarization um, and group polarization uh, is this idea that if you take, say, 12 people um, and poll them about where they stand on different political issues, uh, you know, cut them into two groups of six, depending on where they fit on the spectrum. So sending the more left-leaning ones, you know, in one direction to talk with each other and the right-leaning ones in the other to talk with each other. Um, it's a very reliable finding that when they come back and you pull them again, they're going to be more radicalized in the direction of the group, um, sometimes and sometimes dramatically so, sometimes a little bit more subtly, but nonetheless, they're not going to come back less, you know, on the left or less on the right. They come back kind of animated about it. And this is one of the things that um, I think one of the areas that First Amendment law and behavioral and social psychology could really sort of complement each other. Because in First Amendment law, we have this kind of weak sounding, if, if maybe intuitively true idea that if you, you know, if you uh, if you try to stop hate speech, you're just going to drive it underground where it can fester is usually the language. And that's true. But it's actually worse because it's not as if telling someone that they can't uh, uh, express an opinion is going to change that opinion. It's just going to tell them, well, I should really only talk to people who already agree with me um, on this issue. P- people I know actually share this, you know, one controversial point of view. I'll only say it to them. But there's real damage in that because if you're not actually talking to someone who who potentially could disagree with you out of fear of punishment, you're setting uh, group polarization um, on on steroids. You're, you're you're having people show up and be like, okay, well, I'd like to make friends. Uh, you know, who I don't necessarily agree with, but apparently I can be punished for it. Oh, well, I guess I'll stick to people who I know have have the same opinion of me. 
And if you're talking to people who have the same opinion of you, two, two things t- tend to uh, happen. Is one, you, what I call the hydraulic effect or what is called the hydraulic effect. You end up having more arguments on one side of an issue than the, than the other. So, uh, and, and this is something that Cass Sunstein's really looked into, that if you're on one side of, a, of the political fence, you just literally have you know, many times as many arguments for your position than you know arguments for the other side. But then there's just the whole tribal mentality takes over. Once you think of this group as an us um, and that's your tribe, it it became much more central to your identity. So without realizing it, I think that the the many decade long campus experiment with limiting speech is actually making an institution that could be teaching us to talk across lines of difference. People are actually leaving it more polarized than they went in. And by the way, they went in pretty polarized to begin with. Mm, yeah, yeah. It also, I mean, one thing that you also highlight is that it encourages this um, intellectual hubris, or it encourages mm-hmm. students to think they already know um, yeah. students and and um, um, and teaching staff um, to think that they already know the right thing to think and the right thing to say about some enormously complicated Mm. issues, um, which are just Mm. legislated in this blanket manner. Yeah. And, you know, fostering common beliefs and sort of, uh, you know, commonly held, like my tribe believes the following things. um, That's normal in human society. I don't think it's necessarily, uh, sometimes it could be harmless. but it's not appropriate for institutions that we're supposed to rely on to produce knowledge. Why? Because we don't know all that much about the world, no matter what we like to think, um, that we know a lot less about it. And individually, we, we, we know a tiny amount of it. And training students very early on in sort of like firm ideas of what the world's supposed to look like uh, is not what you should be doing before they go to higher, uh, they get involved in higher education. You should be training them to be radically radically open-minded that essentially everything you believe might be false. And I talked about this as kind of like a um, ideological uncertainty principle, kind of like Heisenberg's uncertainty principle, that the more ideology you freight on what your assumptions must be, the less likely you're going to find out, you know, where the particle is, where the truth actually is, uh, so to speak. Mm, Yeah. Yeah. What do you say to people who say that some speech is, um, objectively harmful to society. So, for example, um, disinformation and mm-hmm. um, conspiracy theorizing. An example which, an, a famous, infamous example which happened in India is that um, people shared on WhatsApp what appeared to be a video of um, three men entering a village and snatching uh, people's children and abducting them and driving off on their motorbikes. And they were sharing this video on WhatsApp. Uh-huh. Uh, it, was shared to, it was shared to millions of people um, through WhatsApp forwards. And I think, um, and eventually um, three men on motorbikes entered a, a village where, this, uh, where people had received these WhatsApp messages and the guys were beaten to death. Um, oh, because wow. they were mistaken for the people in the video. And it turned out that the video was a safety video that had been made um, by the Pakistani government. 
using actors um, oh to warn people about um, child safety. Um, uh-huh. And so uh, the Indian government's response was to um, limit people to 10 WhatsApp forwards per day, which I think is uh-huh. a law still in effect. Um, so um, they saw the problem as being the fact that you can just forward anything on WhatsApp. Um, so what would you say to uh, uh, to people who say that there are many such cases and uh-huh. this is an argument for more carefully policing pl- uh, public speech? Yeah, and th- this is something that, that I do usually try to explain. As, as, as radical as the American position that, that, that I represent on freedom of speech is, uh, it, it is actually a lot more um, reasonable uh, than, you know, uh, when, when I speak in Europe, they're always, they, they think our free speech laws are nuts. And then I start explaining it. And the major distinctions include, you know, we have, uh, that, that makes us really different from other countries, is we have a, uh, a bedrock principle, this comes from case law, that you can't ban speech simply because it's offensive. Um, however, you know, American law deals with things like patterns of behavior, um, you know, things like harassment. Are not, they're not even considered exceptions to freedom of speech because they're considered a pattern, uh, a pattern of behavior. We're trying to figure out um, disinformation on this scale is definitely kind of a new problem, but I don't think it's ir- ir- irresolvable. Um, and one of the best answers, frankly, to disinvitation, uh, um, disinformation are sources of information that everybody trusts. And this is one of the reasons why harm to institutions uh, like higher education, when basically someone can say, listen, it, it, we know that you won't even publish an article that um, contradicts sort of your commonly held belief on this one particular uh, on this one particular topic. We know that you know professors get fired for actually taking the contrary point of view, or at least they get in trouble. So why should people trust uh, you know trust uh, higher education? I think they most mostly they should, but I definitely get skepticism about things that come out of um, a lot of departments in, uh, in higher education. It's the same thing with journalism. Uh, the, the firing of James Bennett, you know, for example, at uh, the New York Times for publishing an article by uh, a sitting senator that reflected the view of the president and shockingly 53% of the population that we should be using the troops to put down um, the riots that we saw uh, over the summer. Um, uh, he got fired for that. And, you know, Barry Weiss stepping down, all this kind of stuff. So when we undermine um, uh, the credibility of epistemic institutions, you end up in a situation where people are are more likely to believe uh, disinformation and they don't really have a source to turn to, to actually be told like that this actually turns out this was a hoax, this was a lie, all all, all this kind of stuff. So I I do think that disinformation poses kind of special problems. um, And some of the ways I think it can be helped is by, for example, not having, um, having social media that doesn't have anonymity, where essentially, you know, you're actually not dealing with a bot, you're dealing with a real and particular person. And I think that could actually be really helpful to the level of discourse that we have um, on, on forums like Twitter. At the same time, though, the tension there is that in a lot of countries, anonymity is a way to keep yourself from getting arrested. Um, so that figuring out how exactly, you know, we go, we go after dis, disinformation, you know, we're, I feel like both social media platforms and the and, uh, U.S. First Amendment lawyers are still trying to figure out exactly what the right way to do it is. But it's definitely not cutting down on the expression of opinion. Mm. I have to say that 
I think fire is one of the few institutions that I still um, have have some faith in. At the end of this Annus Horribilis of twenty twenty, um, I think that this year has. I have seen so many institutions basically um, throw away their credibility, um, mm-hmm. both in journalism, um, the 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 U turns on masks, um, mm-hmm. which was not in itself it would not in itself I think to have damaged people's credibility if they had said, well at that time we thought masks were not helpful now we realize they are helpful I would have been fine with that there was just a complete memory holding of the previous instructions. Um, yes. And I have, I have, ap- I, I mean, I think Alex Jones is a completely crazy man, and I'm surprised mm-hmm. that anybody even listens to him. And I'm, I'm sure that many who do do so for entertainment rather than as true believers. But yeah. nevertheless, I don't see how we can ban disinformation when the World Health Organization is still running a multi-billion-dollar campaign um, to circumcise African men on the grounds that circumcision protects you against HIV, which has been completely mm-hmm. disproven. Um, yeah, I refer listeners back to my podcast with Brian David Earp if you want to hear more about this topic. But I've never actually heard his voice. I, I'm, I'm, I've seen him all over social media. He seems like a nice guy. He's wonderful. Brian is wonderful. Yeah, and 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 you're 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 putting your finger on uh, on something that uh, um, people don't seem to get, and it's something that I feel like I end up injecting into conversations a lot. Is remember the structures that are going to be in charge of the laws, um, and, and this is one one of the reasons why the American Constitution has been able to last such a long time is that the founding fathers had real both optimism and skepticism (laughs) about human nature kind of at the same time. So you have to create sort of checks and balances. And a lot of times I think what you have, you know, people coming from an academic mindset, they just think, oh, um, I'll just create this perfect law and that will fix said social evil, somehow completely glossing over the fact that these are going to be enforced by people and institutions. Um, and just like you said, you know, they're going to have agendas of their own. Um, they're not necessarily going to be right. But if you give them something to ban disinformation, you know what's going to happen? You coming out and saying that they're, they're uh, the world, that they're wrong on this. Hey, actually, no, that's disinformation. I'm, I'm pretty sure because we believe this and we're more powerful than you. Um, and that's one of the things is that you need to some to accept some amount of anarchical problems if you actually want to have the uh, the checking and rechecking that liberal science thinks is is so essential um, to, to to getting you know reliable information in the first place. Yeah. Um, another objection that I often hear is that I often hear from people who say that they are in favor of the expression of any and all ideas. The only mm. thing that they want to see banned is people calling other people names. Mm-hmm. All they want to have banned is somebody shouting, you fucking N-word. I'm not even going to say it because I don't want my podcast to get banned. Um, sure. Or faggot or whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. Um, all that The only thing that they want to ban, and it's very easy to tell when this is happening, is just somebody... in. Uh, somebody in the heat of the moment saying horrible things, things. yeah which yeah. I don't really express an idea yeah uh, yeah I, and and what's and here here it's one of the reasons why 
getting into sort of um, American law is helpful. And, and, and sometimes, you know, a lot of people be like, oh, you're talking law now. We were talking philosophy and policy. And I always have to remind people, in my opinion, the best thought out uh, uh, meditation on how you have free speech in the real world has been American jurisprudence. And I, and I say this when I, I talk in other countries and I, and, and it's, it's such a breach of etiquette to say that, like, actually, I think we have it right and other people have it wrong, but uh, I, I'm unapologetic in that. Now, a lot of the things that people complain about um, on social media uh, are things that aren't protected in the first place. So certainly threats are not protected saying like, I, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to, rape you i'm going to kill you like that that kind of stuff if if it seems uh that it's not just hyperbole yeah that's that's not protected defamation is not protected speech and that's saying uh you know like the worst example would be accusing someone of of um uh, of being guilty of pedophilia for example like that but making it clear that you're making a, an assertion not just some kind of snarky you know snarky joke but if it's none of uh, and of course, there's harassment and stalking, which are patterns of behavior directed to people. None of those are, are those are protected. Um, but speech that is merely just really offensive to you and someone calling you an idiot or someone calling you a nasty name, that's pro <clears throat> that's protected under under American law. And particularly when it comes to uh, where, where we've gotten on a kind of growing list of sort of taboo epithet words in the U.S. It has been kind of strange because if you looked at sort of a American liberalism in the late 1960s, there was an idea that, of, uh, and this, this was not just Lenny Bruce saying this, although he did, uh, the great comedian who we did a documentary on called Can We Take a Joke back in 2015, which I'm, which I'm very proud of. This is even Star Trek. You know, th there was an episode where uh, you know, imaginary um, Abraham Lincoln comes and he refers to uh, Uhura as, as a nigress. Um, and then he realizes that's, that that's offensive. And she just kind of shakes her head like, it's just a word. It doesn't, it doesn't dawn on me that, that I should be offended. And that's kind of where we thought we were going, that essentially we'd take out the sting of these words and we'd see them once again, just as words. And who cares um, that you're trying to insult me? You know, you, you can't make me feel bad about myself without my permission um, was kind of the idea. But we went very much in the other direction, which is expanding the realm of words you uh, not only that you can't use to insult somebody, uh, there's a very strong taboo, and understandably and probably rightfully so, on calling someone a racial epithet. Uh, but it's morphed into something on campus where adult discussions of particular cases that involve racial epithets, uh, where if the professor, God forbid, should say the epithet, we probably have at least a dozen, maybe even two dozen cases of professors getting in actual trouble for in an academic setting, saying words that are in court opinions, which are uh, the, the, one of the most interesting ones we had it was at New School. And this was a professor talking about uh, James Baldwin. And they there was a book about James Baldwin called I Am Not Your Negro. Well, that's not actually what James Baldwin said. And this was a professor more or less saying the temerity of rewriting the words of one of the great one of America's great wordsmiths and you know, one of our great you know, thinkers and writers. That's not what he he was trying to make. He was trying to, to, to poke you. He was trying to shock you a little bit in, in, in what he said. And that's a professor that, you know, uh, they, they tried to get rid of her and she's still you know, having issues to this day. Um, so turning a, a greater number of words into. 
uh, taboos, I feel like unless you start pushing back against that, it, it's just going to sort of continue to grow and we'll actually be giving these words far greater power in society than we do. And meanwhile, there's also a huge double standard when, when, when it comes to the way we do this. We, we understand the use of the, the racial epithets if you uh, think they're actually bannable in the U.S., for example. You know, listen to our music. Uh, they're, kind of, they're kind of all over the place. But within that idea is the idea of reclaiming words, of, of taking the sting out of it. So our art, um, once again, and this often happens, uh, what our art is saying is completely at odds at what um, the norms of higher education are. Yeah. I think it also illustrates um, something that you say in the book, which really resonated with me, which is that speech codes can survive only through selective enforcement. So one mm -hmm. of the things about censorship is that it's almost impossible to have an across-the-board censorship. Um, mm -hmm. And what you have, in effect, is um, laws that can be laws or norms or uh, workplace rules or whatever it might be that uh, are just open to abuse, uh, abuse and exploitation by anybody mm -hmm. who holds a grudge. Yeah, and that's um, and and that actually closely relates to the um, uh, First Amendment concept of of overbreadth and vagueness. And so, if you have a code that bans disrespect uh, on campus, for example, as Johns Hopkins had for a long time, that would be at a, at a public college, one bound by the First Amendment, that would be pretty much laughed out of court. Because huge amounts of protected speech are um, are dis can be disrespectful, um, and it's uh, and it also what disrespect means is very different from person to person and culture to culture and era to era, over and over again. So the the law already has a, has a pretty good um, grasp of that that it, that includes just too much speech. Um, but what that means in practice is that the campus is only really going to enforce this when uh, when they want to and when, when something bugs them. And oh, this is something. Did, did you did you listen to my book on audio? Um, I was listening and reading um, concurrently. So I have it on Kindle and on Audible. So I don't I have know whether, which bits I listened to on audio and which I read. I'm afraid I can't remember now. I'm actually going to ask you for a favor mm. because I listened to the audiobook um and it's always weird hearing someone else saying your words and it reminds me that I have a kind of weird writing style um but the uh, there's a section where I talk about uh, profanity, about about you know swear words as we call them as kids, uh, where I talk about how um people basically I say first people across the political spectrum, some people are very strange about swearing. Um, I, it, I'm not particularly, I, I kind of get it, you know, now that I have little kids, you don't want them going around, you know, uh, dropping F-bombs as they're, uh, as they're called. But I, I, I've always had a lot less of that and always been kind of more of a, you know, a, a, a swearer myself. Um, but, um, uh, but sometimes people are kind of sympathetic to bans on swearing or cases or, 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 Said another way, not uh, all that sympathetic to when a student gets in trouble for profanity. But if you look at the cases where students get in trouble for profanity, it is always really about them saying something bad about the school. Mm, um, yeah. Oftentimes, it's about how many times it's about parking. You know, <laughs> like, like <laughs> how many students I've seen get in trouble because they're like fucking parking, fucking sucks at this fucking school, and da da. 
it doesn't happen in, in, in other circumstances. Right. It's just an it's just an excuse um, to, to because because literally, if if a campus said no swearing on our campus, you could probably you know punish ninety nine percent of students. But they only use it um, arbitrarily or not, or actually very specifically to go after you know individuals or speech or uh, ideas they dislike. Yeah, you know, um, the, uh, yesterday I quoted Armin Navabi, who has been banned from Twitter. Um, I want to segue into social media a little bit in a moment. Sure. Um, who has been banned for from Twitter for blasphemy, um, for posting a picture of the goddess Kali looking sexy and sticking her tongue out. Mm. And I quoted something that he said in a podcast, which was about the love jihad laws in India, which I won't go into right now. And I've actually just done an episode on that with uh, Sadanand Dume. Um, but these are laws that are meant to prevent people from marrying someone of a different religion, in particular mm -hmm. to prevent Hindu women from marrying Muslim men, consensually marrying them. Oh, wow. Um, and um, and Armin begins the podcast by saying, fuck this stupid fucking law and shove it up Modi's ass. I think there are actually <laughs> some more fucks in there as well. Um, <laughs> fuck this stupid fucking, stupid fucking law and shove it up Modi's fucking ass, something like that. <laughs> and um, I, I, I just wrote, Armin has taken the words right out of my mouth and expressed exactly <laughs> how I feel. And afterwards, I was I was really worried. Um, I have a very strict timetable for when I go on social media. Um, uh -huh. So I didn't want to break my own rules and go in there and correct it. But uh -huh. I was afraid that my account was going to be uh, suspended um, or even banned because other people I know have been have had their accounts suspended and in one case permanently banned for swearing. And I Really? Yes. In the end I didn't change it because I thought, you know, I'm an I'm an adult. And mm -hmm. this actually is a perfectly reasonable response to this law, <laughs> frankly. Yeah. Um, the, the the profanity it, uh, helps convey emotion. Exactly. <laughs> I think sometimes it's it's important to swear. And I also think that sometimes it's you, human to insult people and be nasty and rude. Um, and we should try to stop that by having better social norms. But we can't we can't legislate against the feelings that lead you to insult the person. We can't mm -hmm. legislate against the the hatred you feel or the anger or the lack of respect you feel. Mm -hmm. And therefore, I, I think that it, I really don't see any point in legislating against the words. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and, and it ends up taking. I'm working on a comic book about uh, free speech, um, and, and try to try to put all this down. Um, you know, kind of it in um, uh, in one place. And yeah, and I think a lot about what you, you know, like if you were to program an AI 
um, you know, to try to um, censor speech, it, it would constantly be, you know, censoring the wrong people according to, you know, current norms, because these things can't be enforced other than, you know, it, it, it in a highly subjective way. And one dynamic that I really feel, the, and this is this is where my, my, my sort of British roots really show, um, is an understanding of class dynamics is something that really um, the left to, to a degree as it becomes more um, absorbed uh, in, in sort of the academic left. Um, it's lost some of its uh, understanding of class dynamics. And one of those class dynamics is that whatever the upper classes say you should or shouldn't say, they're going to say, fuck that um, and figure out a way to make fun of you for your upper class norms. This is a normal di dynamic to a degree. Actually, it's, it's, it might even be kind of a healthy dynamic. Um, but as soon as you tell, you know, groups of people what they're not allowed to say, particularly if you're as privileged or powerful as people who go to elite higher education um, in, in, in the U.S., there's going to be entire swaths of people who are going to specifically reject that consciously, not, not, not just unconsciously, um, but consciously re re reject that. So this is a dynamic that's always going to be in place. And we understand this when it's a comedian poking fun at the norms of, of what isn't able to own that it's actually the you know u.s upper classes um we we kind of get that a little bit but even that's one of the reasons why comedians you know to a degree i think are being silenced is because they're running into the norms of the of of, of the educated upper class in the united states but it's always going to be the case that there's going to be people who want to poke fun at it um, or or resist it just because it's what the what what the ruling classes actually think um, people should say. And once you understand that dynamic, the, you 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 see how Victorian you're being when you're saying, "How dare you, you know, breach my norms as I learned them at Stanford Law School?" <laughs> and it's and without realizing that that's exactly what they're trying to do. They're trying to call you out. And what and one of the things one of the dynamics about about profanity. Um, that, that, I, that, that I try to convey. And I, I remember talking to some guy who like didn't grow up anywhere around working class people and he, all of his thoughts about them were so patronizing. They're like, oh, you had it so hard. And basically like, we're all, you know, you, you know, we're all victims. And, and it, he even said like, and he thought he was being nice, but he said something about like, like not having enough vocabulary, you know, to, to um, uh, express themselves <laughs> and ruining the I'm like, fuck <laughs> you. Um, with, it, it basically like one of the things you're doing when you're, when you're saying that kind of stuff is I'm straightforward. I'm real <laughs> is what you're conveying. You're conveying sincerity, seriousness. Swears actually convey information how, where they're, how they're used, how they're placed that sometimes people don't even get that really what you're trying to say is that like, I'm not like those upper class jackasses, you know, and as long as that dynamic exists, there's always going to be an argument for, uh, uh, for, for really broad free speech because, you know, ruling class people are, are always going to try to figure out ways to, um, or, or actually the way around, uh, you know, working class people are always going to be looking up to the upper classes and making fun of them. Yeah. Greg, you said that you were going to ask me a favor. Um, mm -hmm. And what was the favor? Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, the favor was, since you have the audiobook, um, I, I think... When I listened to the audiobook, there was no section about profanity in my audiobook. Um, and I suspect that, uh, uh, um, that they removed it uh, because oh. it was filled with swears. 
And I've never had the time to really verify this with, with the company, but listen to the, go to, go to the section where the uh, section on profanity is supposed to be and see if there's anything there and let me know, because this is reminding me that if they really edited that out of my book on freedom of speech, <laughs> that's, you know, awful and hysterical. <laughs> there's a passage. So this isn't from the section on profanity, um, but there's a passage here where you're talking about um, oh, concept creep um, with mm -hmm. terms like harassment and bullying um, mm -hmm. at university. And you give a very nice definition of harassment, which I think is called the Davis Standard. Um, yep. And it is a pattern of behavior um, that is so um, that any reasonable person would find I'm not I'm not giving the precise definition this is completely from memory but it's yeah. more or less uh paraphrasing a pattern of behavior that any reasonable person would find so uh disturbing severe, or severe that it prevents them from being able to make full use of the educational facilities to have equal access yes. to education um and you talk about this concept creep uh which is trying to make people be polite to each other, trying to legislate for that. And you yeah. say, um, I'm going to read this passage. Um, the idea that we should campaign against hurtful speech among adults arises from a failure to understand that free speech is our chosen method of resolving disagreements using words instead of weapons. Open debate is our enlightened means of determining nothing less than how we order our society, what is true and what is false, what wars we should fight, what policies we should pass, whom we should put behind bars for the rest of their lives, and who gets to control our government. This is a deadly serious business. While protecting children from abuse is a noble goal, an overly expansive definition of bullying cannot be allowed to hobble the gravely important exchange of ideas among adults upon which our nation depends. The new emphasis on collegiate bullying treats adults like kindergartners and forgets entirely the gravity of the issues we face in our democracy every single day and the rightful passions they ignite. That's a wonderful passage. Nice. Yeah. It, 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 thank you. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's, it, it was really relieving because as a writer yourself, um, you, you always go through these stages where you wake up and you read what you wrote and you're like, who snuck in and wrote this horrible drivel? Um, and I remember, you know, not being very happy with the book um, in draft after draft after draft and being, um, and then just as, as I was finishing it up, re, like reading like the next to the penultimate draft and being like, huh. That's not bad. <laughs> that's actually what I want. What, that's actually what I wanted to say. And yeah, no, th thank you for thank you for reading that at length because because I, I end up arguing so much for free speech. I kind of forget almost like how many arguments there are um, in favor of it. And the and the deadly serious business part of it is something that I come back to a lot. And so so for example. When I was in law school, the other specialization I had, and I mentioned this a little bit on Learning Liberty, was human rights law. Um, and it was kind of striking to go to classes when we were talking about, you know, things like mass rape and genocide and torture. 
um, to then go into a class where, you know, students were arguing for, you know, don't don't say that mean idea or, you know, um, don't uh, don't don't talk that particular you know way that we didn't like, you know, at our undergrad. And it's like, guys, like, doesn't this kind of put things in perspective? <laughs> you know, like, like we're we are dealing with deadly serious stuff like who. Does it matter if I don't talk exactly like you? Um, and for people who work in serious fields, and this is something I also say in the book, and which I've seen time and time again, uh, the most radical people I have met in my life in terms of their politics tend to be uh, lawyers who work in Silicon Valley who make a ridiculous amount of money and feel kind of guilty about it. Um, it's as if they think that being more radical in their hearts can somehow uh, make up for things like 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 the like the the intensity of the feeling somehow absolves you. Meanwhile, my friends who actually you know work in refugee camps, you know are public defenders, you know work work with the indigent, they tend to become much more pragmatic and, and they see the world as complicated and they are trying to figure out ways to fix it. And it, it tends to have a, a kind of moderating. Um, uh, 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 a moderating effect kind of on their political outview because they're, they're focused on trying to fix things. And that's one of the reasons why what happened this summer, you know, really just killed me because it was this really academic problem. Uh, it, it's really a problem like you see in academia. What am I getting at? Uh, when George Floyd was killed, um, the entire country was united in horror about that, and rightfully so. And we had a moment when we could have made some really common sense reforms, you know, limiting or getting rid of qualified immunity, body cams, um, you know, taking on the police unions. There, there were steps we could have and should have taken to make sure that something like this um, it, it doesn't happen again. And instead, it turned into something that was much more the way academics argue, which is, yeah, let's get this professor fired or get this person canceled from this uh, newspaper or get this person's um, uh, invitation to a school revoked. And we and at fire. We saw an explosion of cases like that in June. We, we got about four or five times as many case emissions in June. Um, than we would we got in any previous June, and it was such a squandered opportunity on this way of not seeing, you know, what's more important here that I get this professor fired or that I, which is harmful. Also, it's not even a good; it's 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 harmful ultimately the production of ideas, or I actually do something in the real world that might be hard uh, but could actually fix things. Mm, yeah, I mean, we we had two episodes of Faulty Towers um, taken out of the BBC archives, so you can no longer watch them on BBC iPlayer. That's definitely done a lot to help Black people in Britain. <laughs> exactly. Oh, it's all solved. Now we know we, we we put a trigger warning on Woody Woodpecker, and everything's okay. <laughs> um, so um, one of the one of the areas which I find most frustrating when I'm trying to argue for freedom of speech, which is probably of all the topics that I have a huge bee in my bonnet about, um, it's probably the one that most <laughs> that most preoccupies me um, and that I'm least good at arguing for because I get very emotional and upset. Um, but one of the most, and by the way, um, I certainly, even though I'm not a huge fan of the uh, of um, the U.S., um, I'm, I apologize. I love many of you Americans, but I'm not. We have great burgers. <laughs> I'm not a huge fan of many things about the country, but I do think that I wish we had the First Amendment worldwide. Me too. Um, 
you know, we do not have freedom of speech. We do not have robust freedom of speech protections in Britain. We had, mm-hmm. you know, a teenager who was um, charged for writing out the words to a rap song on Instagram in a tribute to a, a friend of hers who had committed suicide because oh, those man. words contained, because the lyrics contained the N-word. Uh-huh. Um, we had a man hold up in court for because his Christmas decorations were a picture of a bell and then the word end in lights. So it read bell end. You know, we had a man who was who was fine, who was found guilty by the Scottish courts and fined for um, making a video in which his girlfriend's dog was doing a Hitler salute. It's uh-huh. just we do not have free speech in this country, <laughs> and it really pisses me off. But have you achieved utopia yet? Um, it's looking pretty utopian out here this week. <laughs> Everybody should watch the BBC News to get a <laughs> get a taste of how utopian things are here. <laughs> yeah, no, no. I, I I actually even wrote an article that I think angered some of uh some of our donors. Just a, a something like called like a global First Amendment. Um, Bring but, it uh, on. It, it, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll send it along to you. I, no, back I mean, when I used bring to on for, the global. Well, yes, please send me the article, but also bring on the global First Amendment. Well, and and here's and and here's one of the things that Sarah McLaughlin, who works at Fire, you know, her her focus is more on the international thing. And the idea there was really to to give students an idea of what these policies they think might be nice look like. Uh, um, you know, uh, look like in, in the real world. Um, but one thing among the many things that drives me nuts about sort of like, uh, some of the failings of academia is, you know, it's illegal to be gay in a lot of countries in the world, and it's illegal to be an atheist in a lot of countries in the world. And if you look at kind of the way sometimes um, people in academia argue, it's as if we're on the side of the cultures that want to... <laughs> Like oh they are, we 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 have the selective relativism that I talk about in uh, in the book and we suddenly get relativistic when um, we see some of these um, uh, 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 bad laws and bad behaviors in non-Western countries. Meanwhile, I think it should be safe to be gay or an atheist or or for that matter to change your religion anywhere in the world. That that in my opinion that that's a liberal position. The idea that it's okay you know um, uh, for Pakistan to um, execute someone for for blasphemy because that's their gentle way of being. That's not persuasive to me. Um, but but uh, but this is something that Thomas Sowell you know pointed out, and he was by the way like a verboten re- reader. This, one of the one of the horrible norms of you know higher education was I would never read anybody who who was um, uh, deemed a conservative you know for a long time. And I'm I'm ashamed to say I, I maintained that tab- taboo myself. And then I finally you know read <laughs> I finally read Thomas Sowell. I was like, oh, actually, this is a very crisp, clear, clean uh, thinker. And one of the things that he always brings up is just the idea that academia is consistently in academia. There is an entire class of people whose most important goal is that no matter uh, what happens, that they be perceived as being on the side of the angels, nothing else. Yeah, yeah, (sighs) yeah. And in that and that kind of w- weird point of view, like what they would see rather than being like, you know, criticizing a culture for executing someone for being for, for, for blasphemy is that they're being judgmental of, of another culture. And meanwhile, I see it's like I see a human being, you know, like who easily could have been, you know, if I was born in a in a, in a um, 
uh, a, a very religious community. I have, I, I suspect I might've ended up an atheist all, all the same because I, it, I think it might be part of the way I'm wired. And the idea that um, it's kind of okay for that person to be jailed or imprisoned, we should never accept that. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to um, talk a little bit about social media. So one of the things I come across, up against a lot is the argument that um, social media, Twitter, Facebook, um, actually not even social media, but let's say all of the kinds of platforms that we use, that people use regularly. So I'm including in this Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, PayPal, Patreon, WhatsApp, um, that those are all private companies and mm -hmm. therefore they should be allowed to uh, include or exclude people from their services at will using whatever criteria they wish without warning or appeal because those companies belong to them. And this is an argument that I was expecting to hear from the right. It seems mm -hmm. a very corporation-friendly argument, but it's an argument that I'm mostly hearing from fellow left-wingers. Mm -hmm. um, and who say that it goes against freedom of association, um, the value of freedom of association, to, um, for example, force Jack to have people on Twitter who he doesn't like. Um, mm -hmm. Of course, it's not Jack personally who's taking these decisions, but the decisions are being taken by proxy for him. And we should see these kinds of platforms slash apps as um, private property, as like the equivalent of somebody's private house to which you've been invited. Whereas mm -hmm. I see them very, I see this very much as the public square. And I think that people should no more be banned from social media um, than they should be banned from using the post office or um, speaking on the telephone except perhaps for certain specific, very egregious things, but not for the kinds of opinions they're expressing or the specifics of the vocabulary they're using to express their opinions. Um, mm -hmm. And I have noted recently, there have been some examples in which um, the platforms have coordinated. So um, this happened with a very unpopular figure who it's, so it's easy easy to not be alarmed because nobody likes this person. Well, I say nobody, mm -hmm. of course, she does have fans. The person is Laura Loomer, who I think is kind of really um, uh, a, um, a kind of bad actor in public discourse, let's say, in my opinion. And after she was banned from Twitter, there was a, a, a coordination and she was banned from all of the platforms that I mentioned just now. And I think also from, she was also banned from Subscribestar, which is like the alternative to Patreon. There's no easy way for her, therefore, to monetize her speech and writing. Now, in her mm -hmm. case, I'm not so worried, but a very similar thing also happened to well-known Indian liberal, outspoken critic of Modi and Supreme Court Justice Sanjay Hegde, um, uh -huh. and he's never been reinstated. Um, and similar things happened recently to another liberal who's an outspoken critic of Hindu ethno-nationalism, Salil Tripathi, recent guest on this podcast. Salil has since been reinstated after a big campaign. But I'm very concerned about the way in which we are, in effect, 
excluding people from being able to speak publicly and excluding others from being able to listen by blocking yeah. them from all of the major platforms. Yeah. Yeah. Um, social media is tough because we do respect the fact that they have freedom of association, that you do have freedom to start a company um, and that they're not bound uh, directly by, by the First Amendment, um, that, that they don't have to have First Amendment norms on uh, Facebook or Twitter. Um, and uh, and I, we, we, you know, people like me and um, my, my conservative friend David French have been arguing that First Amendment norms translate perfectly well uh, that you, uh, to uh, social media, and, and they make sense because they're you know the, the ones designed for the public square that looks a lot like Twitter, uh, Twitter and Facebook. So obviously, you know, you can ban threats, you can ban um, uh, defamation, you can ban, uh, you, you know, but, but it can't just be that it's offensive. Um, you, you know, it, it, like I said, it is, is the bedrock principle. I am at the same time worried about uh, pushes coming both from the left and for the right to more or less sort of nationalize um, Twitter and, and, and Facebook, if not um, literally, but, it, but to a degree uh, to have, uh, you know, much stricter regulations on what they can and cannot uh, post because then that ends up getting the prejudices and problems of power coming from the United States government. Um, so I can only imagine if Trump really got all the power he wanted over Twitter, what he would have done to that and who he would have, who he would have banned. Um, and you know, what, what he might've done with, with Facebook, if he was, if he was really like let free, um, to mess with it as much as he wants, the consequences could be pretty bad. The, the assumption is that we shouldn't treat Twitter and Facebook as if they're the only game in town because we've just come to think of them as the only game in town and they might up being, uh, they might end up being as, you know, irrelevant to our lives in 10 years as, as, as MySpace was. Mm -hmm. Um, but I continue to argue, you know, for first amendment norms, um, in, uh, in cyberspace, it's clear that Twitter and Facebook, uh, at the moment are running scared, um, both from the left and from the right and banning people, uh, in a kind of bizarre, uh, in a bizarre kind of way. Facebook is trying to fix it by having a global panel, uh, decide, uh, to, to make judgment calls on what can, can go up. It's, shows that they're taking it seriously, but my concern about having a global panel of people looking at, uh, you know, what should be banned and what shouldn't be in, in particular countries is you end up with kind of a, you, you have the danger of ending up in kind of a convoy situation. In other words, you only can only move as fast as the, in a convoy of the slowest ship, or in this case, the, you can only be as protective of speech as the least protective member <laughs> of that, of that council. Um, so I don't think there's any a uh, particularly easy fix to this stuff. Um, I do think that that promising users basically something like First Amendment norms and then and then enforcing it would probably be their easiest uh, sort of out to all this stuff. And I've said this directly to Facebook as well. Mm. Um, but currently, you know, like they they are just you know banning people hiddly piggly, um, and it's it's only going to decrease um, the tr the trust of institutions, uh, particularly on on the right, as as they see themselves being kind of boxed out of uh, of the, of the public square. Well, Facebook, I think, also doesn't permit anonymity. Um, mm -hmm. I think about it was a 
uh, a while ago now. I mean, I guess it must be 10 years ago now, but I had an anonymous account on Facebook for a long time. I had a very popular um, mm-hmm. kind of blog, I guess, which I posted on Facebook. Um, mm-hmm. I would post the whole blog just in the Facebook um, little box thing, and it had a, maybe uh, around 5,000 readers a day. So it wasn't huge, but um, it was popular by by kind of standards of Facebook posts. And mm-hmm. then one day I was locked out of my account and they said, you have to change your, you have to scan your passport um, page in and change the name of the account to the name that's on your passport or this, or we will delete this account. Mm-hmm. And I did that and it wasn't a huge deal to me. Um, I had my my reasons for being anonymous uh, in that blog were not that I was afraid. Um, mm-hmm. But of course, it meant that a lot of people who were writing about, for example, um, atheists writing from countries in which atheism is illegal or people criticizing authoritarian governments, et cetera, um, all of those people just closed their accounts um, mm-hmm. because they couldn't. Um, they couldn't follow that. And I know that Facebook has also sort of informed on people. So, for example, a Pakistani humanist group, um, their address was given to the Pakistan government, um, and those people were promptly arrested for blasphemy yeah. uh, in real life. So, it's if we have an international panel, I feel fear that it will end up being the kind of joke that the UN Security Council, the the UN Human Rights Council is, where yeah. Saudi Arabia are in charge of <laughs> women's rights, um, yep. you you're going to have you'll be reverting to the lowest common denominator, which is yeah. the least rights protected. Yeah, and, and and that's you know American sort of insularity. Um, as much as we try to get into their heads, oh, do you really want you know this law that looks like this when enforced? Um, you know, there's lots of, particularly like I said in academia, there's a lot of sort of um, uh, convenient relativism. Lots of um, uh, just popping up, you know, as, as people uh, want to sort of distinguish, you know, what's going on in the U.S. W- w- with other countries. Yeah, and uh, where Facebook is headed, and, wh- and where social media is headed, I'm not. I really, I'm really not sure. But I think there's definitely going to be an increase in clamping down that's going to lead to um, an ever stranger environment and a lot of serious abuses, like Facebook being, you know, complicit in the enforcement of. Uh, immoral laws like blasphemy. And yes, uh, to be clear, blasphemy is an immoral law. Um, mm-hmm. People should be able to uh, believe and think uh, as as they will. Um, and I do think it's remarkable how often I find American academics uh, thinking that they're, you know, I think there's there's an old joke about uh, thinking they're Galileo, but actually they're, they're the church. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the other objection that I come across all the time is uh, is people justifying what you very elegantly call dis-invitations mm-hmm. um, with the idea that no one has a right to a platform, mm-hmm. which seems feels to me very backwards because it's, um, well, no one has a right to a platform, but um, you have a right to, in in my opinion, a moral right to the audience who wishes to hear you. Um, mm-hmm. Or to read your books, or 
whatever it might be, that if when you prevent somebody from speaking and reading, you impoverish my life because I can then no longer choose whether I want to listen to or read that person. Yeah, and that pisses me off. <laughs> so. Yeah, well, and, and I've always found that to be the the idea is like, well, they don't have to accept everybody on their platform. It's like, well, yeah, that's truism, but particularly when it comes to, and that's one of the reasons why we don't end up in cases, you know, defending, um, you know, people who just kind of show up on campus and haven't been invited. Uh, when, but when a student or a faculty invite someone to speak, what you're interfering with are the students and um, uh, and faculties' free speech and academic freedom rights to have to have that person there. The, the, the violation is more on the students and the faculty than, than anybody else. And so like this argument that, you know, that the campus doesn't need to have them. First of all, it's used specifically, you know, for an ever-growing, you know, uh, number of people who, who get considered fascist in, in, in British. Who, who was, there was, um, who was, uh, there were some really crazy examples of, of some of the people who were banned in, uh, banned in Britain. Um, and the names escape me at the moment. Um, uh, uh, oh, sorry. Who are banned um, from who, campuses? Who, who, yeah, um, who fell under the no platform for oh, fascists. Yeah, at or, the moment, it's mostly um, the so-called gender critical feminists, right? Um, the more the de Beauvoirian old-fashioned uh, femi- radical feminists, mm-hmm. who are almost all of them have been banned from social media now. Um, mm-hmm. From Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, etc., a, a lot of prominent feminists uh, and people who used to be five minutes ago very well respected, and especially yeah. respected by this more radical segment of the of the woke left, um, yeah. who are have now fallen out of favor because of their attitudes towards um, trans rights. And uh, yeah, that's 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 the main battle here in the UK. And for some reason, this is much more hotly fought in the UK than it is in the US. I.e., yeah. the radical feminists have more people on their side than they do in the yeah. US. So it's a more closely run thing. Um, I can tell you that, for example, Ario's readership is seventy-five to eighty percent Americans, um, mm-hmm. which is why we. Which is why we publish in um, late afternoon, early evening, um, mm-hmm. so that we can get get the West Coast Americans when they're waking up and having their breakfast. Mm-hmm. Um, but when we, whenever we publish a piece on trans issues, or if we publish something by a gender critical feminist, our readership is the readership is completely reversed. It's at least mm-hmm. three quarters Brits. Um, who oh, are reading those kinds of articles, and despite the despite the fact that our readership is mostly three quarters American, so yeah, I don't I don't know why that is specifically, but that is one of the main free speech battles being fought at the moment. And yeah. even though I I'm somewhat torn, but I my sympathies are more strongly with the trans side of things um, mm-hmm. as far as the actual issue is concerned. Um, I am. I'm. I'm. I'm very concerned about how the freedom of speech, how these people's freedom of speech is being infringed. Yeah. Yeah. Um, when it comes to disinvitations, one of the reasons why um, we try to point people to in other directions for data is that, and it's something I saw coming when we first coined the term, you know, way back in like 2012. 
um, that uh, eventually schools were just going to invite fewer controversial people in the first place. And when you look at, you know, commencement speakers, even by 2014, you know, in the top 30 schools in the United States, I don't think a single Republican <laughs> was invited uh, back then. And so uh, what's already happening is that schools are, are, aren't taking the risk of having someone who could be who could be controversial in the first place. Um, and that, you know, deprives the environment of of being able to really you know, study and challenge themselves with, with, with some of these, you know, opinions that they, they, they're they frankly not even hearing in some cases um, on campus. And I think that the, the you know, the old free speech movement of, of the 1960s, you know, Mario Savio and others, they, they had a, they, they really did show some commitment to having some, uh, ha- I think they even had someone from the Klan speak on campus and, and they, they, de- they debated them and they kind of laughed at their ideas, but they came away understanding kind of like the weird superstition around it. Um, not at, and, and, and in no way feeling any sympathy towards it. Um, and that seems to be kind of like one of these primitive ideas that pops up on a lot of campuses is that if you have that pe- person there, it's going to be like a virus. It's going to be contagious. It's going to corrupt the entire um, uh, campus. And, and that really kind of shows lack of respect for the intelligence and quality of your students if they're just sort of, you know, receptacles of of dangerous ideas who will spout them mindlessly as soon as they actually hear someone in a talk. Um, that surely has not been my experience when, when I see uh, speakers who I really disagree with, uh, I might be, you know, in the front of the line asking the first hard question. Mm, yeah. I think people also underestimate the extent to which influence goes both ways. Mm-hmm. Oh, right. Right. Good point. If you exclude people and you force them to silo themselves off into little, um, into little kind of in- intellectual enclaves, among mm-hmm. like-minded people, then you have no opportunity to de-radicalize them. Um, mm-hmm. Exactly. You have no you you no longer have any any influence over them. You you don't have a chance of impacting them. Um, yep. You can punish, but you can't really impact their ideas in that way. So, so I, I hate to say it, but um, I, I, I've been on for about an hour longer than I originally intended to be. Um, so I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to go. Um, but it, but it's been a real pleasure chatting with you. Um, and uh, you know, uh, I think you do I think you do great work. I hope more people will will read Aereo. Um, and I hope this uh, pandemic ends uh, fast and decisively. <laughs> yes, me too. Is there anything that you've been wanting to say that I haven't given you a chance to say? Uh, you know, check out thefire.org. Um, we do incredible work. We, uh, we're, we've been really overwhelmed in the past year by demands for, uh, not demands, by requests for help. Um, and supporting us is helping professors and students all over the, all over the U.S. Um, graduate uh, from school for, despite speaking their minds. I will definitely, uh, all of that will... Um, Links will be in the sh- in the show notes. And thank you so much, Greg. Th- thank you for having me. If you're hearing this, you have been listening to one of our full-length public episodes. To access full-length versions of all our episodes, support the podcast on Patreon at 2 for Tea. You can also find us on Twitter at 2 for Tea. PC, Papa Charlie. Stay well 
stay happy and have a wonderful week.